0: So I'm Film and television podcasts that you didn't know you needed. I am one of your hosts, Michael Shields, and unfortunately we don't have our my usual co-host with us today, Brian Saxon, but fortunately we have a special guest with us today, uh, Christian Needham. He's a he's a writer, an editor, a film historian, um, and I am very happy to have you here with us today, Christian. Thanks for joining.
1: Thanks for having me, Michael.
0: So let's um, right before we get started, I want to give a little shout out to our sponsors. Welcome to the Party Pals, extremely proud to be sponsored by CBD Vermont. CBD Vermont believes that healthy soils, strong local economies, and plant-based wellness go hand in hand. That's why they work with organic farmers across Vermont to grow the highest quality hemp and produce full-spectrum CBD extracts for wholesale. They've recently launched an online store where you can buy Vermont-made CBD products including oils, capsules, edibles, and topicals that have all been fully vetted by the staff at CBD Vermont. They ship everywhere, and they're offering to all our listeners uh, 15% off all their products. So go to CBDVermont.com, check out all the products they have. They've got a ton of awesome stuff. And while there, and when you're checking out into the promo code WTTPP, that's for welcome to the party, pal, obviously, and uh, WTTPP, and you'll get 15% off That's cbdvermont.com uh, business check. So today, this is exciting. I'm very excited about this episode because we are here to talk about Mike Judge Presents Tales from the Tour Bus, the American animated documentary series created by Mike Judge, Richard Bolins, and Dub Cornette. What a cool name, Dub Cornette. Um, it can be found on Cinemax. It presents a, a, a biographical oral history of musicians. With each season focusing on a specific genre. So, what season one, they focused on country music. Season two was funk. Um, you kind of uh, when we were discussing, you know, having you on and what we would do, because I was very excited to have you on, with your knowledge base and, and uh, uh, you. This was your idea. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And I found I found out about it in kind of a a little bit of a roundabout way, but a very modern kind of YouTube era way. Um, I listened to a. Um, a series of videos on YouTube, a guy named Todd in the Shadows, mm-hmm. who does a bunch of really well-done things about one-hit wonders. Um, a series called Train Records, which is all about real disastrous uh, records that that uh, various musicians have made across different genres. Mm-hmm. And this, a trailer for this was recommended. I just happened to watch it. I thought it was a great idea. Yeah. And um, the thing that was a touchstone for me was obviously the season one uh, was Outlaw Country. Yeah and it's something that's a little bit personal to me because growing up uh, my family would do a lot of road trips camping and going out uh, in a a series of minivans during the summers and such and uh, we had different cassettes that would just live in these vans Mm -hmm. and they weren't all music one of them was a cassette of poetry um, by Shel Silverstein who many people might know as the author of The Giving Tree others might know as a uh, country western songwriter for a series of, of artists but specifically his best known work is with outlaw country musicians uh, most famously he wrote A Boy Named Sue mm. for Johnny Cash and he uh, in 19, I believe 1983 he had a, a, a recorded version of a, of a book of poetry called Where the Sidewalk Ends mm. And I think it won uh, a Grammy for Best Spoken Word. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so, subsequently, that cassette made it into uh, our van, listened to it for, for very many years. Yeah. And it's awesome. And Silverstein was also a, a singer uh, in his own right. He mm-hmm. was part of this collective down uh, in Nashville, um, and also in, the, in, in Texas as well, I, I believe, but he was part of a group of musicians that were down in a couple blocks off, off of Music Row in Nashville that co- collected around a place called Hillbilly Central, yeah, and yeah. which was a recording studio uh, run by a guy named Tom, Tom Paul Glazier. And <laughs> Shell had written a, con- a song for Tom Paul named "Put a Log uh, Put Another Log on the Fire," mm-hmm. uh, and then in parentheses it says uh, the male chauvinist uh, national anthem. <laughs> so this song. Was uh, Tom Paul Glazier's greatest hit. Uh-huh. Um, he ran the studio, uh, which uh, saw the likes of Waylon Jennings and um, uh, other other folks that were collected down there that were part of this outlaw country uh, movement. And uh, he was also part of the four four musicians on perhaps the most famous outlaw country mm-hmm. album, which is called Wanted. Yeah, Outlaws. Yeah, yeah. Um, which was from 1976, um, which featured Waylon Jennings. Willie Nelson, um, Waylon's wife, Jesse Coulter, uh-huh. um, on it. And it was the first country album to sell a million dollars. Oh, wow. It's the first one to go platinum. Yeah. And so this was something that really changed the game. And an important aspect of this is the word outlaw. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah, so that's what season one does focus on. So there, it, it is divided. I mean, we're going to discuss multiple seasons. So there's two seasons. The first one is outlaw country. And you mentioned Waylon Jennings. He's one of the people we talked about. The second season is about funk. So what we're going to do here today is pick um, we picked three episodes or three um, artists that they focused on in each season. We're going to kind of discuss uh, them. I mean, I think this also allows it for, so we're not spoiling the whole series and also kind of giving like an introduction to some of them. Um, but just overall, this, this series was just mind blowing. So the first season, they talked uh, about Johnny Paycheck, Jerry Lee Lewis, George Jones and Tammy Wynette. Wynette. Billy Joe Shaver, Waylon Jennings, and Blaze Foley. So we're going to start with um, the the, the season one, episode one, kicks off with Johnny Paycheck. Um, And uh, I didn't know much about... Johnny Johnny paycheck did, were you familiar with them with I mean it sounds like you had some background with, my, with these musicians
1: with with paycheck my first introduction was I think for this generation a lot of people's introduction was a cover of his song take this job and shut it yes it was done for the closing credits of office space mm-hmm. um, another Mike judge project and uh, except in that case it was covered by cannabis and E. oh
0: that's right they did they did do that yes um, that was that was a big deal because they that um, and they talk about that in the show that was something he I mean he became a working-class hero and it was kind of behind that song and he went up there's I mean anyone who knows about the strikes in Kentucky that were the, the was bloody Harlan um, and just he, you know he helped the workers get a deal there and he just became a champion for them they, they mentioned in the series and I can't say if this is real or not I, I've not been able to find anything about it but they said when the song came out um. Un- the unemployment rate skyrocketed <laughs> just because people were kind of emboldened by, uh, by the idea of take this job and shove
1: it. Yeah, it, it really... And a lot of his his imagery subsequently, if you try to find images of Johnny Paycheck, subsequently is uh, is him with picketers or with, yeah. with people on strike. Yep. Um, the most emotional moment of the episode comes where uh, one of Paycheck's friends says it was the only time he saw Paycheck cry was when he helped strikers reach a deal yeah. um, with, uh, with... That was the state. Bloody Harlem, yeah. And of course, uh, Bloody Harlem being um, associated with Harlan County, USA. Mm. Very famous documentary that if anyone's done any kind of film film studies program, they'll, they'll always uh, throw that on as the um, symbolic of the 1970s labor movement and the pushback, violent pushback mm. uh, against the organization at that time.
0: Yeah. Um, I like how when he starts the series out, Mike Judge kind of he starts by kind of calling out a lot of us, and I just it hit home because I mean he's like for not really appreciating country, and um, you know he he did mention in the introduction his introductions and his narration is so well written by the way too you can tell it's a pretty intense passion project, but he goes ahead and makes a comparison kind of between. Um, uh, um, Johnny Paycheck and NWA in the beginning and just how hard some of these guys are I mean, some of these guys I mean I didn't realize just all these country um, you know outlaw country guys how you know hard they lived how how intense they, they, they lived I mean it was it, it was there's a line in this episode which, which uh, I really thought was wild was um, when I was learning more about the drug habits of some of these guys in this case Johnny Paycheck where he said no, someone's like there's nothing worse than a Hillbilly with a hit record, and that's because you know he was spending a lot of his money on, on these hard drugs and stuff. But I, I mean, I didn't know how, how punk rock or hip hop or anything this outlaw gangster music was.
1: Well, I think it's really important that judges himself is, has a diversity of interest in music, and mm. he makes a he makes a good point at the end of this opening statement yeah. where where he says you know so many people are worried about NWA. I was worried that Johnny Paycheck is out there somewhere. Yes,
0: exactly. Exactly. Cuz we know
1: he actually shot
0: a guy. He actually shot a guy. So yeah. We know. Of. Yes, exactly. That's the one we know of. Yeah, he did so he ended up sp- uh, spending time in jail. Didn't he have um he had a hit record that was uh, named after his the time he spent in jail, wasn't it um uh, I could be wrong about that. I'm I'm blanking a little bit, but I love how they did discuss his um his 5-year cycle. Meaning that he would be, a, you know, he, he would be pretty good. He would keep it together. He would, um, you know, kind of have his shit together. And then every five years he would kind of destroy himself and everything would completely fall apart. Yes, his quintessential uh, outlaw country record was um, called 11 Months and 29 Days. Yes. That's what I was referring to. Oof, I, I had a moment there. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's I didn't, I had no idea, uh, you know, kind of the trouble he was causing and, and just the, a lot of these outlaws so he ended up getting a seven year sentence once and that was funny when he's like walking away when he got it he's like I'll be out in two weeks and yeah but he, he also attributes that to saving his life going to jail because he was living so hard
1: yeah and I think this is like something you see again and again as a theme in this series where it's um, unbridled access to the resources to procure yeah uh, whether it's drugs or alcohol or whatnot, and it's left to these these guys to control the, you know, to control those inhibitions. Yeah, paycheck specifically has it's it's important to start the series with him as um, when you're talking about outlaws because from a very early age of all the of all the. Those musicians that are covered, he was the one who was the most delinquent. Mm. Um, he was born Johnny uh, Donny Lytle and was mm-hmm. known as Hubcap Donny. Yeah. Uh, for, for all his car, car theft. exactly. Yeah. And and as some one of his friends points out, this the, usually the car was attached it's to the <laughs> hubcap <laughs> when he made off with it. And even even when it came to early success, they tell an anecdote about him playing with Patsy Cline, mm-hmm. and he couldn't resist himself. He, he got drunk one night and tried to steal Patsy Cline's car, yep. but they wouldn't let him out the whoever was, was running the parking lot wouldn't let him out of the lot so he just drove in circles and circles until the car ran out of gas mm-hmm. and then he bolted yep. you know it's kind of self-destructive street this, sure. the, from an early time on but yeah. another thing that that we'll see throughout this series and into the funk series as well is that if you have talent enough to be useful and profitable you can get away with a lot Yeah, and you can Extend your career mm-hmm. and have multiple acts, you know, yeah. of of your life. Yeah, and that's something with with point. Johnny. That's um, you know, he has he has those hit records mm-hmm. here and there, and he plays on a lot of hit mm-hmm. records. Early on, he <laughs> does himself a big favor by becoming a multi instrumentalist, um, specifically on bass. He essentially becomes a, a sought after session yeah. musician that plays on a lot of these, uh, a lot on a lot of records in in uh, country records. And really, uh, that's the way he networks and becomes mm. uh, and kind of works his way through Nashville, yeah. um, the scene itself. And like so many others, he reaches a limit of, of what will be tolerated. Yeah. And thankfully for his own career and his legacy, there are like minded people that wanted to. Do things their own way, mm. essentially. Yeah, and he finds those people, and again, it goes back to this this larger inner web, web of connected relationships mm-hmm. that we see play out in this series. Yeah, um, they all, to one degree or another, know each other
0: through a absolutely. certain person,
1: and you see these play out through the course There's of the, a lot of, of, the of the connectivity. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, the end of the episode really really got me. There was the prison scene, um, prison concert with Merle Haggard and. Then him singing um, the old violin really really got me, which is kind of a, I guess they described it, and it sounds like it, if you look at the lyrics, as his own his own funeral song, which is which was really intense. But um,
1: and it's also one one other thing about yeah, that is, is if you see it in context of, of again that's that's the end. It's something that's looking back. Um, on his on his life, if you look at the beginning of the episode, every episode judge starts out holding up an LP yeah. of of something that's going to be indicative of who this this uh, musician was, and I believe the one he holds up of uh, Johnny paycheck's is, uh, make sure I get this right, his mm-hmm. his 1978 album "Armed and Crazy," mm-hmm. <laughs> where he looks the most uh, like. Charles Manson. That was
0: used against them in court, and which was yes, yeah, the, the fact that he has an album named me Crazy." Yeah, they, they're like this is definitely defining them. Um, so that they kicked it off. Um, they really kicked in the door. The Johnny paycheck episode that started out. Um, the next one we want to focus on in this first series is the one they actually dedicated two episodes to George Jones and Tammy Wynette. Um, and first thing when the episode started and. I, I was just so taken, and uh, I can't stop thinking about it actually. And I want to listen to more of his music. Was George Jones' voice, and I guess Frank, Frank Sinatra is famously said uh, described him as the second best singer in the world. And his his voice is, I mean, damn, he could sing. He was he was he was something else. But
1: and he also that was that was something that again put him on on the map. But it. The era that he came up in the fifties, he had a very different image than what he would evolve into. Yeah, the crew wow. cut,
0: uh, very much a crew cut. That, they called him the nickname was the possum.
1: The possum because <laughs> of his unfortunate uh, his eyes were
0: yes. very close together. Oh yes, yes, yes. So what, yeah, it wasn't and, his ears or his things, which were all funny looking indeed. But yes, it was. It was his eyes were very close together. Um, but so he did. He eventually, you know, he was he's he was from the big thicket, a very poor community, and. You know, it's appropriately a moonshine song. Was his first big hit. Um, what was, do you know what that was called? I, can't, I, I didn't get the name of it. I'm gonna look it up. But um, um, he eventually found Tammy Wynette and, and, and fell in love. And um, they, they they were quite a duo. I mean, they. Uh, they were, I can't. They were together for six years. That's right.
1: They were together for six years. But they. I mean,
0: but they. Continuously, even after they split up, they continued playing music together and were in each other's life uh, continuously. And this episode did a really good job of chronicling that whole uh, you know, relationship.
1: Yeah, it's called The Most Famous Marriage in, in Nashville mm. for a reason. And I think they were very complimentary in some ways. Yep. Um, as I said before, she was one that really helped refine his image. Um, she was a, a hairdresser in a, in a previous career yeah. for... Uh, go moving on to uh, singing, and that was, uh, and also had, had a very, very good sense of style and presentation, yeah. and that's something that really becomes important apart from her, her own voice and as well, but. Something you mentioned before um, that, that's very important, I think, throughout the series again and these to as well is mm-hmm. where they're from. Yeah, um, a lot of them make their money in, in Nashville, Tennessee, mm-hmm. but they're all from spread out from different parts of the country. Yeah. As I said, Big Thicket is in that near a little town called Vidor, Vidor Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Johnny Paycheck's from Ohio, mm-hmm. Tammy Wynette is yeah, from deep Mississippi, in Apple, yeah, yeah. Um, and they've but they all. It's important that it, you kind of really get a spread of American um, experience that, that kind of helps them become the, you know, stand out as the individuals they are, the things that they're writing about. Um, even if the, the themes that, that are touched on seem to be recurring, you know, love stories or broken mm-hmm. love stories or marriage and things like that, um, you know, it's something that's, uh, that's an important thing the other thing too for as you said the the other side the complimentary side with uh, George is I think his his sense of of songwriting is is kind of um, very innate Hmm. it's uh, something that that he's he's my observation just going back listening to his stuff uh, watching this series is he's not necessarily presented as the most uh, book smart guy yeah but he has uh, a hell of a voice and a hell of a an ear for composition mm-hmm. and a, a hell of a um, a ear for for a hit yeah and that's something that's again something that becomes a, a recurrent theme through both seasons of this show is kind of a, the amazing thing of being able to perform when you are under the influence yeah. of various various things and more than I think anyone else George Jones might be the most hardcore addict oh this, yes this absolutely
0: trait. yeah I was gonna say there's a lot of tragedy in this one too this I mean this 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 does get it's ultimately pretty sad. I mean, alcohol is a hell of a drug, and you can see how it affect him. And, uh, and he's throwing cocaine, which which he got into as well, which um, ultimately caused a psychotic break for him. I mean, they have this situation, and, and you know, it comes off a little bit comical because he does this thing where he's got a Donald Duck voice, and then he has an old man voice, and they argue together. And like, it's it's hard not to laugh about that, especially when they animate the whole thing. I mean. It's wild.
1: and especially when he tries to kick one of them
0: yeah <laughs>
1: one of the things that's portrayed is the Donald Duck voice. he finally has enough and and pantomimes letting this letting the duck off the yeah. bus and then telling the bus driver to drive on, yeah, and then he gets he misses the duck because that's his only friend, yeah, and so they gum around they they have to turn the bus around yeah. and it looks like he's you know putting this duck back back on yeah. the, the bus to talk to the old the old man uh being uh, you know like a grumpy. Um, you know, kind of, you know, alter ego uh-huh. that uh, that he can talk to because no one else is, will talk to him yep. when he's in a certain state of mind. Sure. Um, one of the other things that's interesting too is like of the the anecdotes. One of my favorite anecdotes are the he's a big car aficionado. Yeah. And he at a certain point uh, buys this really nice car with something like four thousand dollars in silver dollars, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, ingrained in in the the dashboard panels and whatnot and. A few dozen six shooter pistols and a big set of bull horns mm-hmm. on the fr- on mm-hmm. you know adorning the front, mm-hmm. a horn that showed that you know plays a dying a dying cow sound. <laughs> you know it's just the ultimate kind of extravagance here. And this is while he's married to Tammy Wynette, and eventually she gets so fed up with this uh, with you know him just driving around mm-hmm. in uh, different places that she throws all the keys to all his cars in the bushes. So one well, night he wants to go drink, so he says, well, fine, the only thing left I can drive is my riding mower. Mm-hmm. So he gets on the riding <laughs> mower, and she's so upset that he's going to get uh, whiskey on the riding yeah. mower, she calls the the, the lawyer, mm-hmm. their family lawyer, I guess, and, mm-hmm. and by the time he arrives, they go to find uh, find George, and he's already on his way back on the highway, on the riding mower, with a with a paper sack full of, of whiskey that he'd gotten, and there's this image that Judge portrays of um, Tammy Wynette shouting out the out of the side window of the car at George Jones, who's just ignoring her as he drives his, his uh, riding mower at a slow five miles an hour back up the highway and hasn't bothered to turn off the blades, which are kicking <laughs> up rocks all over the place. Um, and that's kind of indicative of of you know the how bad things
0: could get. Yeah, now. absolutely. Which is kind of funny you think about like their relationship and and. She's maybe most famous, at least in my world, for the song "Stand by Your Man," yeah, which is kind of you know unique in in the way that you know she ultimately um, she did leave him, right?
1: She did, and, and, and that comes at, a, at, a, at around 1968. Okay, and so this is toward the more the beginning of the marriage, mm-hmm. which is which is. I wonder if that song will, would have been the same toward yes, the end of the marriage. Exactly.
0: Yeah, I definitely have mixed feelings about, um, you know, mixed thoughts about the the song and its message, and just kind of because I mean, just seeing what she was dealing with with the alcoholism, and just you know, I was, was almost I was you know uh, relieved when you know she she was finding her uh, her you know getting getting away from that. But uh, it was wild too, and I think the listener can really get a sense of how many different stories they pack into these like half hour shows. I mean. I mean you, I mean, we haven't even touched. There's so many different stories that they, they get into in each one. But um, and one
1: last it, thing about that too, in terms of that story, because you yeah. did mention this before. Even after they were married, they ended up working together anyway. yep um, Because of how complimentary they were, they had absolutely popularity yeah. and uh, a complimentary hit that they had was the song "Golden Rings," mm. which is based on a true story where they go to get, uh, I believe, uh, ring from a pawn shop, and within the song, it tells the story of how he, that, that ring is going to end in a broken marriage. And it was a duet uh-huh. and it was a tragic one. Yeah. But it was one that they would sing yeah. after their marriage. And, of course, everybody in the audience would know their history. Yeah. And it would get a big pop from the audience because you have emotional weight to it. Yeah. And that's pretty big because at the same time, you know, something also was brought up is the jealousies that are inherent there. The yeah. fact that 10 1 became very sought after. Mm-hmm. Went out with various other famous men while she was touring with George. Yeah, and so, so that was yeah. its own. Its he didn't own
0: take name. that well all the, all the time. Um, she uh, Tammy has, this, uh, has has a you know extra relationship with Mike Judge. She was um, she was Hank Hill's mom on King of the Hill. Yes, yeah. So that he had a personal relationship or working relationship with right her. Uh, in, that, in that way,
1: and the other thing that's that's interesting about King of the Hill too is the way he would film those cameos. It wasn't he, if you go back over the the, the history of that show, we had a lot of famous people that wouldn't necessarily play themselves. Yeah, like if you were on The Simpsons, it would be your you'd be Simpsonized in that yeah 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 thing. yeah. Not so with the, with King of the Hill. Oh, they would
0: actually just yeah they would create a character and, and you they the this famous person would. Assume that role. Absolutely. Oh well, uh.
1: my favorite one is uh, Boomhauer's brother, mm-hmm. I believe, or cousin mm-hmm. is is a Brad Pitt, and so he uh. gets to as uh, who ends up annoying Boomhauer in one of the episodes uh-huh. there, and that's. But uh, the funny thing is to have a have a long term character like Hank Hill's mother played by someone like like Tammy Wynette, um, and as Judge says, that's his first. Uh, interaction with the duck voice yeah. because uh, she said that uh, George had a me- that it mean uh, Donald Duck under yeah. certain, certain under certain <laughs> under circumstances.
0: certain under certain states of mind <laughs> that duck voice thing just just cracks me up i know it's i know it's sad actually and he was going through a lot um let's get into it this is my favorite part of season 1 uh again two episodes were dedicated to this man Waylon Jennings' Haas, um so as he, when he was introduced by Mike Judge, it was described how there was two Whalens, the man with the black hat being the outlaw, and then um, the man with the slick back hair, who uh, you know early in his career almost blew up with Buddy Holly um, at the dawn of rock and roll. And uh, this was a fascinating one. I was super excited that they um, they took the time to do two episodes for this.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, Waylon grows up in Littlefield, Texas, mm-hmm. in West Texas, and. It, by the, the luck of geography, um, Buddy Holly grows up in Lubbock about 80 miles uh, away and they get a chance to be in, in proximity and it's, it's, as it's portrayed in the episode they uh, get a chance to, to uh, tour together after uh, the crickets and Holly split ways yeah and so uh, Waylon becomes part of this new band mm-hmm. and uh, faithfully, on this uh, this tour that that uh, goes out, um, it has the it starts out very successful as, as some of the biggest names in rock and roll at that time, including the Big Bobber, yeah. yeah, Richie Valens, mm-hmm. um, but uh, ends in tragedy, obviously. Yeah. And that's something that uh, recurring again and again, to one degree or another, is dodging death. Yeah. For for Waylon.
0: He should have died. died with Buddy Holly in that plane crash. Yeah. That's uh, remarkable. I mean, the the show will get into it, and I really urge you to jump on these whaling episode. But I mean, he he was scheduled to be on on the private plane. There was a situation uh, with a friend where he you know was sick, and he wanted that friend to uh, take his seat. And he was supposed to be there, which is really really remarkable. And there they, they that story was a little bit sad because he kind of blamed himself. He, him, and Buddy were kind of. Um, Button heads are joking at each other a little bit uh, beforehand, and, and he, mentioned, he made a joke about the plane crash. Yeah, that, that was that's true, right? I mean, I think his son was even saying that. His yeah. Yeah. yeah, shooter, uh, is
1: his, his youngest son. Yeah, um, but the a guy who in, in this season kind of puts things in context again and again is this musician King Friedman. Yep,
0: and excellent interview. Yeah,
1: of that that relationship, I made a note of what he says about it. It says. Buddy Holly was definitely the match that killed, that ignited the flame for Waylon Jennings, yeah. no question. And he also showed Waylon how easy it was for that to go away. Yeah. and I think that's that's important because, again, it's a lot of this this fame can be to one degree or another fleeting. And longevity um, for someone who's an outsider like Waylon. Uh, the fact that he was an outsider long enough to be accepted as part of the establishment mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. really telling. Yep, um, and that's Great that's point. something where, where a, a guy that maybe didn't expect to live that long um, had to adjust had to adjust to that. Yeah, um, you know, what happens when his, yeah. that generation has to uh, create changes in, in that music scene, and, and um, a guy that kind of replaces uh, Buddy later in life on that. On that wavelength is, is certainly Willie Nelson. Yeah, uh, yeah, becomes a but in between um, there's all there's another faithful and very kind of I think um, uh, combustible relationship uh, that it has with John. Yeah,
0: they were roommates, which is astounding. As, right off the bat, astounding, but also uh, you know it's heightened by the fact that they were both huge. Pill heads at the time. They were, I mean, they were both. Uh, they, I mean, they were completely pilled out. They were, they were a mess living together.
1: And they weren't alone. that's, yeah. that's the other yeah. thing worth noting here is that that it's pointed out that Nashville at that time, even mainstream Nashville, ran on amphetamines. Yeah. And the idea that I also
0: can't believe how much blow was in the country scene back yeah. in the day. <laughs> My
1: goodness. And the importance of, of touring, I think, is, yeah. is is the is the reason for it. Yeah. The idea, I think, you got to get the, uh, perspective of band members saying, like, if you're expecting us to tour a couple hundred uh, dates a year yeah. and to bring that show around the country, night in and night yeah. out, regardless, uh, that you know you're gonna need artificial measures yeah. to, to accomplish that. Yeah. And in the there, there's there are homes away from home that develop, and one of them that's talked about is the is, I believe it's called the Boar's Nest. Mm. Which is the home of a group that was known as the Outsiders, Yeah. which is really uh, what what Cash and, and Jennings, and I, I guess Nelson is also part of that, but it was, yeah. it was an after-hours joint uh, run out of a woman's apartment mm-hmm. who was a country music fan, uh, but really, would, it was just a glorified house that had an electric sign Yeah. It was called the, the, the Boar's Nest, and then people would just come over and get drunk and do drugs and play music yeah. for... hours, nights, days,
0: days, (laughs) days, I mean, they really, they weren't sleeping much, it was crazy, I mean, at one point they talked about how we um, were smoking five packs of cigarettes a day, and someone tried to do the math, and he's like, they're like, you have to stay up almost all day, you have to stay up all day to do that, like, to make that happen, which is crazy, and it gets to the point where you're normalizing,
1: um, you know, just just the idea of, of how to... Uh, hide those hide drugs from each other yeah and there's a great anecdote in oh, yeah. there where where uh Waylon's trying to uh hide uh, his pills from Johnny yeah. Johnny's convinced they're in this new car <laughs> that Waylon has so he tears <laughs> apart the, the dashboard of the car well it turns out that uh Waylon got me the tip that he could hide his pills in the wall by dropping him behind the light switch. Yeah. However, the only way to get at this emergency stash was to knock a hole in the base of the yeah. to
0: get at him, yeah. uh, to, pull, to pull him out. He should have, um, in uh, Breaking Bad, Heisenberg does the same trick with the thing, but he tapes the, it was the drug that he used to kill. Um, it was towards the end. I think he was going to use it on... Um, uh, John Carlos' character. Gus, I think.
1: And he goes back to the house after it's been abandoned. Yes, he gets it. Left. He gets
0: it there because he taped it behind the electric field thing. But they were just dropping the drugs down there. Yeah. And, uh, do that. yeah, There's also that antidote about the PCP and heroin. I guess it was known as um, the, the Atlanta dog where they're all messed up on stage. That didn't go so well. Um, yeah, but you mentioned Willie Nelson. Their relationship was definitely uh, pivotal to the rise of Waylon Jennings. I mean, hippies loved Willie and Waylon and there was there's this point where he's at a show, um, and I think Willie set it up for him, but Waylon was blown away because cowboys and hippies were getting, you know, getting together and loving the music, and that was that was, you know, that was what the outlaw movement was all about. Yeah, Willie's the crucial
1: part of this this outlaw, starting when he basically quits Nashville, goes back to Texas, starts rebuilding um, a touring base, yep. and calls Waylon in to, uh, to join him. Stepping quickly back, though, to how that compares to his relationship with with Cash, I think there that was became much more of a the Willie Whelan uh, relationship becomes much more productive away from Nashville, partially uh, because of maybe just just uh, a core a core personality or spirit. And again, Kiki Freeman kind of puts this into perspective. I made a note of something said about Cash and. Um, and Whalen, when they lived together, that really struck me. He um, said it was like Van Gogh and Gauguin when they were roommates. Um, whereas Gauguin had a better commercial eye and what was happening. That would be Johnny Cash. Mm-hmm. Um, they said Van Gogh and Gauguin that Gauguin loved the sunshine for painting, but Van Gogh loved the sun. And he got too close to it sometimes. That's Whalen. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and I think you know was perfect. perfect. Yeah. And, and I think with a guy like like Willie's more of a again a, a, a frustrated free spirit, you know, a successful songwriter um, for for a while, um, something that they can, can maybe connect over marijuana instead of amphetamines, mm-hmm. different kind of high yeah. um, out there. And uh, subsequently, it's it's interesting the places that the road takes Waylon and the, the fan bases that he builds. Yeah, um, one of them being. Um, they focus on being the four corners Navajo Nation. Mm-hmm. Um, he comes in his own. He said he's, he's basically um, the biggest thing there. Yeah, you know, he's, uh, he's like on the stones here. He's, he's yeah. a celebrity. Yeah. Um, and of course, there's the. It's one of the one of the funnier little moments always always uh, about this episode is um, when he no shows a concert in the, the nation and mm. um, they surround his, the fans are, are mad. So they surround his bus and says the and Jennings. And they said, "Well, Whalen's on the bus." Yeah, he's, he's, it's because his name's on the bus. His name's on the bus. It's got to be on the bus. Yep. So they get the chief comes on with with a group, and they offer, say, "Okay, you can see if he's on the bus or not." And they go through the bus, and they're looking for stuff. And Judge has a little touch where they're just flipping open stuff, and there are drugs and guns here and there. But they don't care. They mm-hmm. don't care about the the, yeah. the, the, the salacious stuff. Yeah. They want Whalen. Yeah. And it's it's one of those things that beyond um, just. Um, You know, building a fan base financially was important. You know, Mm -hmm. because again, this stuff doesn't pay for itself. Bands don't pay for themselves. And again, another theme that runs through these two seasons Mm -hmm. is how do you pay the all those people um, that make this that make the act work? And that includes you know band members that are ever shipping, roadies, um, managers, managers, and it seems like every one of these guys. You hear the phrase "one," the first of, or part of yeah. a series of <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. managers <laughs> yeah. or players, yeah. and all those things. And um, but the results are um, these these landmark albums. Yeah. I'll say this too, as as one last thing on mm-hmm. this with with Willie and, and Waylon and stuff. The high point is is the Outlaws album, "Wanted the Outlaws." Yeah, um, they do something about that album though that's that's interesting it's completely pre-recorded material it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of like a greatest hits album in, in a way it's it's part of other other albums that hadn't been that had't the when they were released the, the over the previous couple of years outlaw hadn't hit yet yeah and once it did we have to get this all together put it together an album that at the, just the right time to catch it mm-hmm. and that'll that'll be it yep yeah. and I think cultural moments are, are a big thing and they When that, I believe it was uh, what was it, seventy seven? I want to say that it was was released seventy six. Okay, no worries. Seventy six. It's the mid seventies seems to be whether it's outlaw country Uh or funk.
0: Uh
1: Mid seventies, you see this this uh, in parallel with with the cultural shift in in the country, evolution of music, and, and. Evolution of style and country is, is is just just as much part of that. Yeah. However, I think the shift in funk is way more dramatic. Yeah. Than country. Yep. The fact that you know, as much as I love the songs of, of the outlaw movement, yeah. um, compared to the, the classic style, it's I don't know how much it actually moves the needle in terms of being adventurous with the media. Yeah, you know, I agree. Yeah, so yeah. I, I just one of the things that like I like one of the, one of the notes one of the songs William sings is, I'm sure this is this is how Hank Williams did it? Mm. Because he seems to Hank Williams Senior seems to be the spirit animal that hovers over all these yep. guys. No he was despite his addictions, mm-hmm. uh, his great talent yeah. um, forced his way into being part of that, yeah. Yeah. that side um, the last the closing episode by the way of mm-hmm. this is, it speaks to that too a guy who was a parallel um, a contemporary of uh, Williams Sr. before he passed in the early 50s at a, at a very young age uh, was a guy named Red Foley and uh, Blaze Foley yeah. and yeah. a guy the final episode of the season is Blaze Foley um, who took his stage name inspired by Red Foley mm-hmm. um, and it's Guy who's, who's kind of in the shadows, but has gotten his due. Um, Interestingly, over the last year, Ethan Hawke directed a movie called Blaze last year yeah. that came out for yes. Sundance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, wrote the script with Blaze's widow, and it's really uh, it's really worth seeing. It's it's a great um, look at a, at this, uh, at the Austin country scene at a specific time as it was building in the '70s and '80s, and how that reflected. Uh, the, um, the outlaw country mu- movement, but not from uh, from maybe a huge record sales point of view, but more the um, the aesthetic of it, more yeah. the mindset. Mm-hmm. Uh, famously Blaze uh, Foley, more than anything, and obviously uh, stylistically, was known uh, for his use of duct tape, and was uh, very kind of disgusted by the urban cowboy movement at the time, where you put the silver on the tips of your, your boots. And your um, your tie and, and your uh, right, yeah. your lapels, and so we put duct tape there as kind of a statement mm-hmm. of, of a more you know uh, down to earth approach to style over uh, um, over that uh, for his yeah. own substance. Um, but yeah, he's, that's the, the closing of, of the of the first series with Blaze Foley. Yeah. Yes. Is, is really telling Puts because it's, it, it. it's a little bit of a left field turn. to someone mm-hmm. that you don't know about, yeah. and we'll see. He does that. He
0: does that. They do the same thing in the final episode uh, a little bit um, of the Funk season, season two, with
1: with someone who's um, who again, you know, while while Blaze is, uh, dies at thirty nine, mm-hmm. um, the 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 subject of the closing episode is uh, perhaps even more tragic because. She
0: didn't die. She didn't die, yeah. That's um, Betty Davis. We'll get to that. So it's time to get into the funk. Before we do, just a reminder that Welcome to the Party, Pal, is part of the Osiris Podcast Network. Osiris is a family of podcasts that brings you um, all kinds of podcasts, a ton of music podcasts, a bunch of comedy podcasts, arts and culture podcasts. I saw today um, that there's going to be a new Chef series, which looked incredible. I'll more on that to come, but... Uh, check out OsirisPod. dot com. They got they got uh, they got the goods. Check it out. Um, let's get into the funk. So season two was dedicated to funk, and um, just like the it's season one where they just nailed it with their decision of who they chose to kind of start this thing out, they start with George Clinton, and, uh, they, and I think I think it was Mike Judge who says we're starting the season at the top with the prime minister, and so. Um, George Clinton I'm, I'm a huge fan I've, I've been you know in, in a lot of I was you know that was what was cool for this series for this season for me was you know there's a lot of more familiar familiarity um, you know I was kind of getting introduced to a lot in the country the country um, focused the outlaw country but this this was cool I mean this is George Clinton was in this series um, Rick James a season uh, Rick James Bootsy Collins James Brown Morris Day and then Betty Davis as we alluded to but um, so, one thing I really noticed is you know as much as um, cocaine was a big character in season one, LSD reigned supreme in the funk scene. It's wild,
1: and I think you're really seeing a generational shift and a and a racial cultural shift too. Yeah. First season with Outlaw Country first season with Outlaw Country, a lot of the guys are born in the 30s. They're in mm-hmm. the tail end of, of the Depression. Yep. A lot of these guys that are born in... in, uh, in, in and uh, are born kind of a half a generation later yep. in the 40s and are, are children really of, of the 60s and, and the hippie movement. Yep. But just as country and Outlaw Country kind of mixed uh, for the first time the hippies and the cowboys into this commercial... Mix that that um, would produce outlaw. Um, what you really had with with funk was was the um, was the post Motown um, yeah. commercial side mm-hmm. that, that that these guys forced forced their way into the um, the commercial mainstream by the most kind of relaxed. Uh, trip, you could you could imagine. Yeah. I mean, it seems that you know, like, but they're, they're important because they, it, it, if Nashville is is this, is kind of like the sun that, that the, Cor- um, the outlaw country guys orbit, it's Detroit's Motown. Barry Gordy yep. is yeah. the one that the the funk uh, orbits as well. And LSD um, being kind of re- this recurring thing. Yeah. So much so. That George Clinton goes to, essentially, the very source, yeah. Tim Leary. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah he, a, he was introduced
0: experiment. to LSD by people who studied under Tim Leary at Harvard, and they brought him back, and they actually took their first LSD at Harvard under, under the the test there. Yeah, Amazing.
1: And got paid for
0: it. And got paid for so it. And so it was described as, because, you know, as you were perfectly describing, is, is, is um, you know, he was, you know, Motown background and everything, but it was Motown plus acid equals P-Funk, pretty much. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, so that's what that took them to a whole new thing. I mean, it was, I mean...
1: And it could have easily gone a different direction because sure. George is one of the, the funnier anecdotes is that his first band, The Parliaments and him, mm-hmm. go to audition for Barry Gorey at, at, uh, uh, at Hitsville, USA, yeah. and, are toward, and are told they're too ugly
0: yes. to, <laughs> yeah. to be one of the main acts
1: there. <laughs> so they make their own way yep. on that and it's it's one of those things where you know because maybe because of that they their image creation goes the way again this is they pioneer a lot of stuff costumes yep. Um, stagecraft yep um, just just the idea of characters yeah and this is something that, so, you know, so theatric yeah the theatrics before the village people mm-hmm. um, at the same time as Alice Cooper is building his his own um, stuff Theatrics. These guys are are on par with, uh, and at times I would say superior to. Um, mm-hmm. Probably the high point being the, the Mothership yeah. uh, era yes. of, of P Funk, mm-hmm. where he basically George Clinton scrap, scraps together all the money he can to build a, a working spaceship that will land on stage to introduce him to the crowd, and if. That ain't a pop. I don't know what is.
0: <laughs> it's so incredible. But
1: he's the necessary guy, though. That's he's, yeah. His longevity. He's a guy who's still alive, and he has seen so many eras, and he's been a pioneer for so many of those things. Yeah. Sometimes you can boil him down to just a song. Mm-hmm. I mean, working backwards, the most the most recent one that's probably his biggest. Um, Sampling contribution is Atomic Dog, yeah. Which again, they Trey used
0: that. it tons. Yeah, absolutely. So many hip. I, I, uh, Ice Ice Cube used it what like eight times, I think, or yeah. like, like uh, numerous occasions. Yeah, he's and and I love that his music has lived on through that. And and it was so special. Um, you know, you mentioned how yeah. he's still around. It was so special his part in this in this episode. He, I mean, he's a great storyteller. He was able to convey, um, you know, so much of what happened, whether it's the story of uh, the girl puffing a joint out of her ass at a show or just you know, it's a wild ride and it it does have, it's like most of these these, um, episodes do it does have tragic moments I mean, Crack got a hold of him big time, at one point I think they bought $50,000 worth of cocaine and I mean drugs really, really fucked him up and you Know that's that's you know another theme that kind of you know resonates through these stories, and there's, there's an arc that you see in a lot of like you know rock biographies and stuff. It's I mean, it's it's it, it holds true,
1: and I think also that through the lens of the theme of the show, it's again touring and not just something that, that I thought was really interesting, uh, in, in the, the episode was uh, probably more, with the exception of of maybe the Rick James episode, is is the the role of sex mm-hmm. and the idea that he gets this nickname called the Prez because he's not getting mouth, yeah. and the idea of the idea of his, his the idea of how much sex he would be getting compared to other mm-hmm. uh, members of the band because he was this scary character who never George, smiled. George freaked people
0: out. He freaked yeah, them out. He freaked, freaked out. Yeah, w- women weren't not sure what to make of him.
1: Yeah, and so <laughs> he. For, for a while there he's this this guy who's whether by choice or not mm-hmm. he's you know has a uh, kind of a forced abstinence yeah on, yeah they're not getting all the things you would think a rock star would get out uh, of star
0: is caliber yeah
1: but it's but uh, one other thing that's interesting about about that too is you know there were um, both men and women were part of this P funk nation that, that seemed like yeah. this like very um, fun-loving, larger collective mm-hmm. um, of people that um, that George was a very kind of, probably had a very natural centerpiece too, yeah. because he was, he becomes, and probably in, in, certainly the number of bands surpasses uh, Motown, mm-hmm. in the idea of how many bands here you have going, that yeah. um, the P-Bunk Nation gets like wildly yeah. while the bands grow exponentially of course Bootsy Collins becomes goes to the head of that yep. um but as the adventures that these guys get into uh, it's it's interesting the ones that are highlighted are are pretty um, funny and harmless compared yeah. to the cowboy uh, the kind of um, outlawed um, cowboy um, ones in the first, um, season, the first yeah. season. Yeah. Judge even yeah. says at the head of this season, you'll probably notice there's not as much gunplay, gunplay. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. this time around. Yeah. Um, the most scary thing being that when they're high, and I think it's 1968, mm-hmm. they make their touring in Pennsylvania and accidentally drive through the set of uh, Night George, of the Living Death yeah, while probably, they're yeah. high on LSD It yeah. completely freaks. What a serendipitous
0: out. high on LSD mm-hmm. moment! You know, he just—I mean, it turns out that that freaked them that freaked them out, but like. I would have believed it was real. Absolutely, that's crazy.
1: And one last thing on that, because of the tour, like in places like Pennsylvania, up into Michigan, mm-hmm. up into the upper Midwest, they introduce the funk across the nation yeah. in a very um, in a very visceral way. You know, the idea that there's no sure you could sell records, um, you know, remotely, but there's no replacing the show. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that they do when they first hit in the late '60s, that I thought was was interesting is they're they're touring with bands up in again, home, uh, Motown's home home turf, but but bands like Iggy Pop, the MC5, yeah, um, yeah. bands that if, uh, that were in 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 one way or in the other kind of the um, the inspiration for punk, um, what would become punk. And if you ever read, there's a great book written by a guy named Legs McNeil mm-hmm. called Please Kill Me: mm-hmm. The Uncensored uh, Oral History of Punk. It was from '96, and it's been updated a couple of times. But um, he goes and he talks to Iggy and, and MC5 and other stuff, uh, other guys like that, and uh, people like Perry Ubu from uh, uh, from Cleveland, mm-hmm. uh, Rocket from the Tombs or Rocket from the Crypt. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. All these guys that were part of this midwestern rock musical kind of punk aesthetic, you can see it in a lot of ways of way P-Funk and, and Parliament and guys like Bootsy. Um, are that the, the, their nonconformist spirit yeah. can can really play into that, um, very much more theatrical, mm-hmm. but um, in a jam band is, uh, sense as well. But um, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Well, the funk is its own reward, as we know. But um, as I was talking about just a minute ago, how Joe I found George to be such a great storyteller, and it was really great to see him uh, in animated form telling these stories. And episode four, we we come across Butsy Collins, and um, you know, who's obviously a huge part of the George Clinton one, and, and we're seeing him throughout. But he is, uh, I would describe him as the definition of an unreliable narrator. He said it right off the bat. He's like, "Look, um, hopefully you have other people here to, you know." Fill in the holes in any of these stories, which they aptly did, because he's like, I've been taking LSD almost day. I was taking LSD almost daily from 1968 to the end of the 70s. And like, <laughs> Damn, and, and it Imagine shows. That but tall tall. that was such a such a cool uh, episode. I mean, he, it just. I mean, because he did. I mean, what bootsy did so well, and it kind of ties this whole uh, series together. He he bridged the gap between two legends in James Brown and George Clinton and, you know, eventually became a huge legend himself. And, you know, he was brought in to work with um, James Brown, obviously became, like, his uh, touring band. But then, he, it, you know, this is the, I think this was the main crux of this episode, how he went from that to working with, um, you know... Uh, uh, to uh, George Clinton, and, you know, he, he showed him the the idea of the one. That's the gift he gave from James to George. But, I mean, he was a conduit between that.
1: Absolutely. I think the one is the single most important of both series, the single most important technical musical anecdote that's brought up. Yeah. Um, Can you speak on that a little bit? So, basically, as, as um, Judge puts it, the one is the first beat of the measure, the key to funk for, for James Brown was to put the accent on the one. who mm-hmm. would come to define the sound. Mm-hmm. So it would be wow.
0: Yep. Bum, 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 bum. Yep. And so
1: when you something that's especially important is Bootsy Collins being a bassist mm-hmm. on that. Um, usually a guy is meant to hold down the bottom uh, of of any of the, the rhythm section. That would be a guy that that basically dictates the start, you know, when bringing the beat back around for James to be able to start that off and give give the beat a kick in the kick in the pants, yeah,
0: yeah, so to speak. Yeah.
1: And it, interestingly enough, while it was was a technical necessity for James Brown to be able to really um, kickstart a song, when Bootsy uh, explains this whole musical phenomenon count essentially yeah. to george clinton yep um he takes it a much more kind of metaphysical mm-hmm. way and get, makes it kind of his own kind of movement yeah and the absolutely. is you know like the idea that we are all one essentially
0: yeah, yeah. i mean the 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 concept of one works in life is something they were preaching after a while which was which was really really cool um uh, it was fun. They touched on a lot of the collabos that Bootsy Collins was doing because, I mean, through his career, he ended up working with everyone. And the one I found very humorous is, I mean, he's on D-Light's groove. His groove is in the heart. Uh, <laughs> I found it really hilarious how how um, George didn't take to that at all. He's, he's like, fuck that disco shit. I mean, he was happy for him to be working on things that were popular. And, you know, he supported him. But um, I really thought that was funny. But yeah, Bootsy was... And I don't even think I, I realized how big he was, you know, and yeah. I, I think of him as a huge star anyways, but I mean, Hollywood took to him, I mean, and they described kind of how, why, I mean, when George Clinton walked off stage, he, you know, kind of the whole, um, he kind of looked regular, which is crazy to think when he took off his costumes, I mean, think, but he didn't take off his costume, he was, that was him, he like really lived in character, which is amazing.
1: Yeah, there's a, there's a, a point in the episode where Judge kind of cycles through the... Uh, Via one of his interviewers, um, interviewees, the the evolution of Bootsy's first couple of albums, mm-hmm. and you see the the image of Bootsy grow and grow and grow. Um, in terms, of, I think by album three, I think it's Bootsy Player of the Year. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, that's really rooted, I think, in the fact that the Bootsy starts out as a as a mercenary. Really, um, he and the, the Pacemakers, his first band, are are a cover band mm-hmm. in Cincinnati. Um, where where this all starts and are basically brought in by uh, an associate of James Brown's who replaced his old man's mm-hmm. most notably uh, Maceo Parker yeah uh, so <laughs> if anyone are uh, any horny horn fans out there that's that was a big uh, big split this happens yep. in 1970 yep. and it's a very eventful 11 months that um, that the JBs led by uh, Led by Bootsy, yeah, will spend with James learning, learning all this stuff before transitioning over to being with with George, yeah, um, and becoming uh, basically Bootsy's rubber band. Um, the, something that's really um, also interesting that they they point out there again is like. Uh, the importance of geography again, where these guys come from, and in this case, Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. In Cincinnati's case, there's a there's a place called King Studios, which had recorded R and B uh, artists going back to 1951. Yep. And I like the idea that uh, that there are diff- you know in these different territories, it's not just Motown. Mm-hmm. There are other places that are recording studios that are collective musicians that are also making trying to make their name and and subsequently. Producing their own sound. And on, on King, uh, coming out of uh, that, that same year, um, you have uh, a very important record that, that uh, Bootsy and the, the JVs play on called uh, Get Up, I Feel Like Being a Sets Machine, uh, which is ironically recorded in Nashville. It's, oh, really? Yes, um, because it has the infrastructure of, mm-hmm. of engineers and recording people there. But Sex Machine, the album was recorded back in Cincinnati, yeah, um, under the King label. Um, but again, I, I like that crossover. Yeah, that this first, the first album they recorded of all places. That's Nashville. That's Nashville.
0: Yeah, that, that that definitely kind of blends worlds there. One last thing on Please.
1: that, though, uh, that you mentioned before, just to go to uh, something that talking to George that they they mentioned is that he becomes very quickly. Bootsy becomes very quickly. By default, the face of P Funk Nation because he breaks out, yeah, um, and because his character is so um, commercial, it's so it's so popular, mm-hmm. and I think uh, he he can only be in, in George's band for like his prop band proper for only like I think he says six months. Before. Yeah, he's like no, you got to go off of the. Year. Exactly, mm-hmm. he saw it under that. He saw it. Yep, and that 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 worked. Um, and one last thing also on that that in this season the Funk season, um, you have. These guys, for the most part, except for um, obviously the, uh, Rick James and, and Betty Davis, telling their own stories. A lot more of these people telling their own stories. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think season one, it's only really Billy Joe Shaver. Yeah. And then very briefly, um, Jerry Lee Lewis. Yeah, the, uh,
0: the Adams brothers carry a lot of weight during that whole series. Yes, they do. Yeah, they yeah. yeah. absolutely. Um, great and also, daughters. one
1: one other thing about uh, the Billy Joe Shavers, though, you get him recalling for himself being you know, a dirt poor boy going in bare feet. To see Hank Williams Jr. Mm-hmm. or Senior, pardon mm-hmm. going to see Hank Williams Senior, and this this guy that everybody holds up as as like this mythic person, he actually gets a chance to, to relate that, and, yeah. and and his other thing, of course, being that he hold essentially holds Waylon Jennings hostage and makes him listen to his songs <laughs> so that he'll record them, <laughs> which is which is great. I'm glad I could hear it from another one of those guys to be able to do it. Yeah, but th- there's no replacing. There's no replacing. Um, from the mouth of the, of the, the person themselves. Um, yeah. Which is something that, that really needs to be said about these two seasons. The idea that you're, you're, you, the judge finds the people that knew these people while they're still living and, and have these memories, yeah. but are willing to speak to them in a way that's not necessarily flattering. Yep. But are great stories of the Completely
0: honest. It's super honest. I mean, to to a point where, yes, they're throwing themselves under the bus a lot. They're laughing at each other. They're, they're like A couple of them mentioned that, they probably wouldn't tell these stories if their mothers were alive and stuff like that. I mean, it's definitely... It's vulnerable.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, Waylon... Uh, sorry, Johnny Paycheck's manager replaced the uh, incident when he shot a bus driver in the ear yeah. because he wouldn't take the bus to get Johnny Paycheck his Big Mac. Yeah. And yeah. that was how he made, made him do it.
0: That was, that was, that was ridiculous. I, there's uh, just one more episode, and I know I brought this to the table when we were discussing which episodes we were going to do. I really want to talk about... The final episode of season two is Betty Davis. I, I just thought this was a fascinating story. Um, You know, they—it's. I mean, she was an uh, an artist who was as dedicated to funk as anyone, but kind of found in her career more backlash and grief um, than lasting fame. I mean, I think they describe it as uh, punk's greatest secret and most painful truth. And um, I didn't know this much about her, and there's just. I just really think um, in a different time, I, I, I think she was so far ahead of her time that if she was, you know, putting out the music she was and, and being as open and, and, and who she was, I mean, in today's world, I think she could have been huge. Absolutely a monster star.
1: Yeah. The, and she's, even in the short time of, of her body of work, some three actual released albums in the 70s and then um, an unreleased album that finally was released in 2009. Yeah. Um, she went through an evolution of looks mm-hmm. that, that were very much under her own control. She produced her own albums. She wrote her own albums. She sang her own albums. And that um, single-mindedness ended up uh, really uh, having a double-edged effect on on her career. On yeah. Being, being able to be something that was commercial um, or "Quote unquote,"
0: selling out. Um, yeah, I mean, she was so controversial. Well, first off, it's worth notice, no um, noting, if anyone's not familiar with this uh, Betty Davis, not to be confused as B T T Y. Um, she was the ex-Davis, uh, ex Davis, ex ex wife of <laughs> ex Davis of Miles Davis. Uh, yeah. They were married for a year, but she kept the name. Um, and she was so controversial because of her overt sexuality. I mean, her dancing, her dressing. Um, I guess they were like, "How dare!" somebody not dressed like Aretha or act like Aretha when they hit the stage, and she just didn't, I mean, to put it in the most simple terms, she didn't give a fuck.
1: Yeah, Uh, and this this came from, I think, uh, the fashion world, of all things, that she was coming from. She came to New York from Pittsburgh, originally born in North Carolina, where she had a lot of family, Mm -hmm. grew up in Pittsburgh, came to New York City to study fashion, do modeling, Um, and... uh, born Betty Mabry yeah. um, is uh, seen by, by uh, uh, Davis in a, in a, in a club uh, while he is, I believe, it was a very whirlwind romance. They were only married a year. Yeah. But at a very important year in Miles Davis's oh, career. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, her, her aesthetic uh, approach and, and pr- very natural eye and, and uh, really um, rubbed off on everything from how Miles Davis dressed to his his sound I mean he went from wearing you know uh, tailored suits to the uh, very kind of pastel colors and flared uh, pants of, of the era again this was going from um, you know classic jazz man attire to embracing the new cultural revolution essentially yeah. also this is on the cusp they're marrying on the cusp of the release of Miles's um, basically going electric yeah. um, and his most famous probably one of his, his most famous albums Bitches Brew. Um, what do you mean? What do you mean? Probably, Christian? probably, exactly. <laughs> no, um, I mean, but ri- like, and of course, the anecdote means yeah. that the idea was originally that he was going to call it witches brew. Yeah, until yeah, she Eddie's, helped with the name. She's
0: like, no, it should be bitches brew. But like, yeah, I'd, I'd like to even bring that home a little bit more. Like, she kind of pushed him into this, this just. I mean, not just through style, but just this whole kind of transformation into this other being that ended up, you know kind of re- reinventing himself a little bit, and that turned to him reinventing his sound and, like, taking, you know, kind of embracing the electronic and buying the, buying the Wawa for his horn, you know. Horn. Like, she, basically, it, it, it could be said that there isn't a Witch's Brew or Bitch's Brew without her and Miles's world coming together, which is
1: incredible. Absolutely, and there's a pay, there is a payback to that too. When she embarks on her musical career in '73 with her self named album Betty Davis, mm-hmm. she records in three weeks, mostly through connections that she has with Miles Davis's uh, musical side. Uh, is with a, a amazing production of, of band members. Um.
0: Yeah, she she, she 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 hijacked a bunch of or, or harvested a bunch of ones that. Uh, um, that uh, Miles would work with, it. but um, and, and he was cool with it. I mean, they were they were they were actually, cool. Yeah, even
1: even down to whenever they were stumped on on needing a rhythm or, yep. or something, they would be able to actually literally call Miles Davis and put him on the phone and give them ideas. Yeah, but I mean, the idea that coming out of, of this album you have uh, people like Neil Sean from Journey, which is yep. my favorite favorite, you know, the idea of like thinking years later, it's like Neil Sean <laughs> from Journey, Greg Greg Erico from Sly Stone, Sly Stone uh, yep. is is his drummer. Larry Graham from Grand Central Station, uh-huh. Um And a lot of, and this is again very telling, um, they say some of the best young players in the Bay Area. The idea of this, this West Coast sound. Right there too. Um, something else worth with noting is that it's, it's in three years he releases three albums. And over that time, again, stylistically, uh, when you pick up an L, a, a Betty Davis LP, um, you have a very striking cover for you. And mm-hmm. It's all about um, the, about her. She's very the way she presents herself is very reminiscent of someone out there, like David Bowie, mm-hmm. honestly. Yeah. Um, even down to the fact, like I've said before, I heard some I, I someone uh, referred to her as the space glam diva. Um, yeah. With stuff that of her contemporaries and people that she toured with, people like Patti LaBelle mm-hmm. um, that had you know the where, you know. Um, uh, knee-high silver boots and kind of have this spacey aura to them. Um, her second album um, is uh, is interesting because it's say it's, it's titled "They Say I'm Different," and there's a documentary that came out a couple years ago called uh, "Betty Davis: They Say I'm Different" um, with a director a guy. Um, Named Phil uh, philip cox mm-hmm. he's associated with a play with an um a group called native films over in the uk and basically spent four years uh earning betty davis's trust as she has lived these past several decades in seclusion yeah um, yeah trying the, the, to get her to do an interview she does not appear in the in the documentary mm-hmm. though um her voice does um, but he never got her on camera uh which is which is uh ironic because in each of these three albums uh See Betty Davis. Betty Davis. They say I'm different, and then perhaps most salaciously, "Nasty Gal" yeah, from '75. Awesome.
0: third album. That I thing, I think slaps. If anyone, if anyone, wants to check out her work, get "Nasty Girl."
1: It's it's pretty
0: amazing. "Nasty Gal," Sorry.
1: and I watched. Uh, it was interesting. I watched um, a video. I was, I was trying to find anything I could to find in addition to this yeah. episode about about. Um, she disappeared.
0: Uh, she, I mean, there was it was another uh, another one of these stories that became very tragic. I mean, her career stumbled, and, 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 and she fell off the map, and you know, you learn that she dealt with a lot of psych- psychiatric issues and was hospitalized, and it just sucks.
1: Yeah, and it's, in terms of a lasting image, it's, it's interesting. One of these things that I found about her was uh, something that NYU had, had run as a symposium where people were coming together to discuss her place. In, in music. It was uh, a video, I guess from a couple years ago. It was uh, directed by, uh, or it was overseen by a uh, woman named Dandala Duff, mm. who's a uh, director of uh, integrated digital media at NYU uh, Tandon School of Engineering. And there's like 10 people in the audience, right? But I watched this thing, it's like two, it's two hours or so, uh-huh. and people were trying to put Betty Davis's place in context in an academic way. And one of the things that they had awesome. of that, that they talk about is is when Nasty Owl comes out, basically uh, in one of the things, if you open up this LP and you see all these, these photographs, uh, well, first of all, the front cover photograph is salacious enough. It's, it's her kind of on the side, like uh, opening her leg up in kind of a yogic yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of thing there. But underneath, uh, she had collaborated with a photographer named Antonio Lopez and that, to change her uh, look into something of... Um, Something a little bit more involved than this, this space style yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just a, a quick, quick uh, pull quote from Diantha Duff about it. She notes um, the image is one of control and power, despite its raw sexuality, referencing the pinup era of the 1940s. However, however, Betty subverts the pinup. Instead of posing for the male gaze, she flips the script and uses the man objects yes in essence yes. she sums it up as
0: feminist 100% She, I mean way ahead of her time in this way and that's what I was getting at originally and I'm so glad uh, we're shining a light on her a little bit I mean she she was feminist she was she was she was powerful her sexuality was powerful she wasn't ashamed of it she she you know I think about like you know the the stars of today whether Beyonce Nikki Janelle Monet, I mean she slides right in and she's just killing it right now which would be just remarkable but um Wow, there is so much to talk about in this series and i just I couldn't re- recommend it more i mean it's it like it's such a fun way to learn about all these musicians on and off stage um uh you know I, I just really hope it continues because I really want to see uh other bands and artists I love to get this to get the uh welcome to the tour bus treatment you know
1: yeah and even within these seasons I saw an interview that or read an interview that the judge did with uh New York Magazine's Vulture, mm-hmm. and about people that he would have liked to have gotten. So for Funk, he was he was uh, trying to get Earthwind by. Oh, cool! Yeah, and that didn't act, that didn't quite happen. Yeah. But I could totally see the, like that that idea of like how do you fill out this larger this larger picture of yeah. these. Uh, of these movements. Mm-hmm. And that's the great thing. They're a great primer. I mean, the, the episodes are usually not no more than 28 minutes long. Yeah. There are a couple of two-parters, the way yep. that Jennings is, is a two-parter. Yep. Um, we didn't talk too much about it, uh, but uh, Rick James is, Rick is a James two-parter, is two-parter as well. Up. And he's a, he's an interesting kind of bridge into punk. Yeah. Um, at the Which I, is at, cool, yes. Yeah. I don't he think makes a lot of a people Vega know about that.
0: Yep. Yeah, yeah, the punk punk world's combining. It um, also, you know what it does? It's a good job of, not only are these stars highlighted, but um, they do a good job kind of uh, focusing on on all the people who built them up all the other artists who worked with them they get a chance to tell their stories and and it's something I want to say about you too it's also a lot of the work I see you do as a as a film writer and um, as a film historian is is you you've I mean you've put me on to so many directors or so many cinematographers or so many people that that fly just a touch under the radar but they are there the whole time making this extravagant art and you know I thought about you when I was looking about you know, watching the show and just seeing, you know, Mike Judge is introducing me to all these kind of people who are there making this art the whole time that know it, that, that are not household names, and you've done that in the film world with me so many times, and I want to thank you for that while, while, while you're here, you know?
1: Thank you so much, Michael. Yeah, I appreciate that, and it's worth noting that before I got into film or read any books about film, you know, for me, an important kind of, again, uh... Judge, I said, you know, has has said that this was a labor of love. It's yeah. his primary thing. He has he does a lot of different things. Primarily at the moment, being uh, one of the creators of Silicon Valley mm-hmm. on HBO. Yeah, I would have expected this to be on the same network, but Cinematic... they're in bed together.
0: Cinemax and HBO, are are pretty they? much. Yeah, it's like they act. It's HBO's action network at this point. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah,
1: um, you know, I like uh, there. There are other other books that I've I've read about um, uh, uh, both film and music mm-hmm. where. It's it's more about getting the salacious details mm-hmm. from people, yeah. For what regardless of what the,
0: the mixed result is going to be, and yeah, I, exactly. I don't, With I don't no regard that. for like how it affects the the artist, maybe.
1: Well, the first one I ever read, and it's the thing that came to mind as I was as I was watching this series is a book called Hammer of the Gods. Mm-hmm. It's from 1985, yeah. Um, and it's on, it's the first of this. Uh, style of book that I that i read. Yeah, um, by guys uh, who's written several more mu- uh, band biographies uh, since then. His name's Stephen Davis. Um, the only other one I've, I've read of it is in full. I've read a bunch of them partially. Um, in full is uh, one about Guns N' Roses called Watch You Bleed. Oh yeah, yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah. Which is good, and he's a real mess. Is it good? I need he's, to see that. It it's out. good in the sense that it's it's again the the key word is salacious, mm-hmm. I guess he does his research but the thing and he finds uh, key people surrounding those people even if he can't interview members of the band uh, to build his story and that's why this series reminded me of it with Hammer of the Gods it's very notorious uh, being the fact that he talks his primary source is is a guy named Richard Cole Mm. who was the first tour manager for uh, Led Zeppelin when they were at the height of their fame and that brought to light a bunch of stuff most notoriously Jimmy Page's relationship with Lori Maddox uh, when she was 14 yeah Yikes. paralleling with Jerry Lee Lewis his cousin uh, who judge interviews oh yeah yeah um, yeah in this totally. episode yeah um, and talks about what that what the fallout was when she went with Jerry to England as, as essentially a child bride yeah. and um, basically yeah. someone in asking her a question and she didn't know any better and obviously said oh no he's my husband
0: yeah. <laughs> and how
1: old are you and I think she lied and said what 16 yeah. instead of 14 or something <laughs> something like that I like, uh, even though books like that are entertaining, the older I get, the more respect for books I like. Like I say, um, uh, Please Kill Me, I think, who ran Punk Magazine for a long time, has has his heart in the right place, wants, wants, with with a book like that, wanted to get these guys on the record Mm -hmm. before they weren't here anymore. And I really feel that way for both these seasons with what Judge is doing. And for anyone listening to this, if you want an introduction to these to these genres and something that you wouldn't even think that you'd like the music and heck mm-hmm. even if you watch the episodes and they do sample a lot of these these artists yeah you know, yeah even if you're not into it them as people in in this you know tapestry of American culture at a very important cultural time in the sixties seventies to the eighties mm-hmm. when music across every genre was was evolving having that on the record in you know, a yeah. really engaging in different way yeah. like he's done is important you know. Here we are, as we record this. I think we're moving into something like the 16th week in a row where uh, Lil Nas X's "Old Town Road" is the top of the Billboard charts. One more week, and it'll be, I think, a record mm-hmm. for how long something like that has been. And the iconography of that song, even though it's 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 hip hop, is uh, is steeped in Western culture. Yeah. You know, it's and it's something that's that's part of its its controversy. Yeah. Is it a country song? Yeah. Is yeah. it not? Is yeah. it is it hip hop? Yeah. Um. But I think you know you don't get to something like that without um, the place of outlaw country aesthetic in in on the radio. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, the true. idea of, of that that you know this the rugged individualism that mm-hmm. comes with that. Also something video game culture too. I think mm-hmm. the funny you, thing. YouTube culture. Yeah, YouTube culture. Yeah. One of the funny things about. Uh, uh, um, Old Town Road is, I think, the first music video that I saw on YouTube for it was basically uh, gameplay pulls from Red Dead Redemption, which talk about a cultural <laughs> moment. Uh, probably the most, the, the biggest yeah. entree to old West culture for this generation yeah. is, you know, a yeah. video game culture like yeah. that, much more so than the staid, boring kind of, kind, of, you know, kind of club atmosphere. It seems mm-hmm. sometimes with with a proper country. Yeah, um, that's the great thing. It's a reminder. That, that there have been people for a long time now that are trying, that, that pushing against that, wanting to do things their own way, wanting to cross over, but still keep the things about about the genres that they like. Mm-hmm. And you could say that about outlaw country. Mm-hmm. You can say that about funk. Yeah, much more adventurously than funk. I, I yes. for my money. Oh yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think that's it's something where any again, hip hop today. Um, you know, go ask ask uh, Snoop ask Dogg in the G Funk Empire mm-hmm. uh, or. Dr. Dre and 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 Snoop. But the idea that you know that there that there's it's a really great history lesson yep. in an engaging way yep. that I think um, is well worth it. Yeah. Well worth
0: it. I, I, I agree. Talk. Mike Judges nailed it, and I think we nailed it as much as we can, a lot to talk about in in one episode. We uh, we jammed it in. So Christian, thanks for joining. I really, really appreciate it. And everyone out there, thank you for uh, joining the party. Hello. It's nothing.